Open your Bibles to James chapter 5. So there's this, uh, there's this strange phenomenon that has been going on in sports for years now. And for years, nobody's ever been able to figure it out or really identify what it is. And it's a phenomenon that really only takes place in a few very, very select athletes. It's, it's this thing, it's, honestly, these athletes that it takes place in, it's, they have the same effect on championships that it seems like magnets have on anything that's metal. Like winning is second nature to these athletes in which this phenomenon takes place in. Um, these are the ones who, at the end of the game, they want the ball in their hands. And, uh, and somehow, some way, they're going to figure out a way to, they're going to figure out a way to win it. They're going to figure out a way to win the game, will it to win, or whatever. And, and this whole time, so people have been asking these questions, okay, what is this? And, and as if people have been asking questions, what this phenomenon is that gives these athletes the ability to, to figure out a way to win, companies have jumped all over the opportunity and exploited some of the answers they've come up with. Like, maybe it's what they drink. I don't know if y'all remember the movie Space Jam. I don't, was, that, was that too? Okay, good. So Space Jam, Michael Jordan gets sucked into a hole while he's playing golf and into Looney Tunes or Looney whatever world. And, uh, and he gets on this basketball team. And I don't know if you remember, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but on the basketball team that he was playing on, they, they, all the characters were drinking this special Michael Jordan's drink. It was just a water bottle. Honestly, they found out later it just had water in it. But they had some athletic tape on it that said Michael Jordan's special drink. Maybe that's what was causing this phenomenon to take place in this athlete. Now, now a company that's totally taken advantage of this for years is Gatorade. Gatorade has made millions off of Michael Jordan, made millions off of Larry Bird, and has made millions off of athletes since. Maybe it's, maybe it's what, they, what they drink, people have said. But others have said maybe it's the shoes they wear. Nike Air Jordans. I swear to you, when I was in elementary school, I, I, I really believed that if I could just get my hands on a pair of Jordans, then I would literally be able to play like Michael Jordan himself. Uh, not true. I, do y'all remember Re, uh, Reebok pumps? Okay. I mean, Reebok pumps, they were legit, man. They had this little, on the, on the little tongue of it, you know, they, this little pump thing, it would make your shoe tighter. And supposedly it made you jump higher. That wasn't the case either. But. So maybe it's what they drink. Maybe it's, maybe it's the shoes they wear. Maybe it's the underwear they wear. Michael Jordan, again, you're seeing a little trend here with MJ. Uh, Hanes, where do we get our Hanes on you? He's in all those Hanes commercials. Maybe it's the breakfast, breakfast that they eat, Wheaties, breakfast of champions. But maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's, Maybe it's this, this biological thing. Maybe it's a special gene that only a few people, uh, that only a few people get. I mean, I, I don't know. People have been asking these questions forever. Nobody really knows what it is that causes this phenomenon to take place in these people. But over the years, people have come up with this terminology to describe people like this. Like, they might say, that guy is clutch. Or, or he is, when, when the game is on the line, put the ball in his hands because that fool is automatic. Or he is money. Or he is bank, or some you know less weird terminologies. They'll just say he's a winner, or or he's a finisher. You ever uh, you ever seen those those daytime talk shows where where they bring somebody on the show and and they tell them they're coming on for a certain reason, and then when they get there about halfway through the show, they kind of switch it up on them and say, "Look, you're really not here because it's Father's Day, and we're trying to honor fathers." Like they bring this dude on the show named Steve, okay? And Steve comes on the show, and he thinks he's coming on the show because. His family nominated him or suggested he be on the show because he's a great father. It's a Father's Day episode, and, and he thinks he's there for Father's Day, but in reality, halfway through the show, Oprah or whoever it is says, Steve, look, you're not really here because it's Father's Day. You're here because you don't know this, but uh, you have a twin brother. 
and your twin brother Steve is here. And so they say, hey, everybody, welcome to the stage, Steve's twin brother. And, and so his brother comes out, and all of a sudden there's like this really dramatic moment that unfolds on stage and with crying, and, you know, brothers don't shake hands. They got a hug, and so they, you know, they hug it out, and, and this emotional thing happens on stage. Well, I, I swear to you, I, I had a moment like this about a week ago, uh, minus the daytime TV show, minus the hugging, minus the crying, minus all that stuff and the drama. Uh, but, but I had a moment like this. Um, <laughs> Where I was, I was after our uh, after our, our 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 softball church softball game. We went over to some friend's house of mine, and, and I went there. And when I got there, there were there were two girls and one guy. Now the guy I'd never met before in my life. Okay, so I walk in. Now let me let me kind of set up the situation before uh, uh, before I walk in there. Okay, this guy and these two girls they had a basketball game on the television. It was L.A. Lakers. I think it was I think it was the Lakers versus New Orleans. Okay, and so before I walk in, they've started this conversation. And the conversation had something to do with the basketball game. And this guy, again, who I've never met before, uh, he says something to the effect of Kobe Bryant has ice water. All right, yeah, he said Kobe Bryant has ice water. Now the girls are like, what the heck is ice water? And so this is before I've walked in. Before I walk in, they say, so what is ice water? And so this guy, again, who I've never met, begins to explain to the girls what ice water is. So that's about when I walk in. And when I walk in, the girls ask me, so do you know what ice water is? And immediately, as they ask me, do you know what ice water is, which I do, I immediately look and I said, Michael Jordan, hitting the game-winning shots, 1997 and 1998 NBA Finals against uh, the Utah Jazz, ice water. And as soon as I said that, this guy that I've never met, he makes eye contact with me, okay? <laughs> Locks on. And then he says, Tiger Woods, 18th hole, Masters, sinks a putt, ice water. And I say back to him, Vince Young, 2005 National Championship, Rose Bowl, fourth down, end of the game, 20 yards out. He drops back to pass, runs it in for the game-winning touchdown, ice, water. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, Lance Armstrong, seven Tour de France championships in a row, ice, water. Michael Crabtree, 2008 against University of Texas in Ludwig, one second left on the clock, runs it in for a touchdown. Totally ruins UT's hope for a national championship, ice, water. Kobe Bryant, ice, water. Tim Tebow, ice, water. And then we had this bro moment where there was this incredible bro connection. And it was like in the movies where all of a sudden everything just kind of gets dark around us and the spotlights are just on us too. And what's happening here in the middle, this bro moment, this bro connection, it was just us bros. Bros that should have been bros our whole life, but we weren't bros because something in the universe was keeping these two bros from being bros for whatever reason. But now, because of this bro moment and bro connection, we were bros and probably going to be bros for life. And then one of the girls says, so what's ice water? And, uh, and so I begin to try and explain to them, okay, when you have ice water running through your veins, you are cold-blooded, like you are clutch, you are automatic. When the game's on the line, you are money, you are bank, you're a finisher, you're a winner. Yeah, you're a finisher. Now, if you're still having trouble, you non-athletes understand what I'm trying to say when I say ice water. I'll put it this way. Jack Bauer, ice water. Chuck Norris, ice water. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 1, 2, and 3, ice water. Harry Potter, I've never seen the movie, so I don't know. Uh, Forrest Gump. Ice water. The, the chick from, uh, from Murder, She Wrote. That's an old show. Anybody remember? Okay, Ice Water. Okay, Carrie Underwood, the other night, singing whatever song that was with Vince Gill. Ice Water. Hanson, not Ice Water. Justin Bieber, I know the fool is young, but that little squirt has ice water. These all are people who have ice water. They're finishers. They persevere to the end, and they finish strong. Now, we've been studying... We've been studying the book of James now for 10 weeks. So this is week 11. So we're, we're getting to a place. We're about to wrap it up. We're closing it up. And in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, 
James begins to wrap this letter up. We enter into a place as a letter where, I mean, he's, he's, he's walking into the conclusion. I mean, these are his last words, okay? And last words, they are huge. This is what you're gonna leave the people with, James. Okay, so, I mean, James, what, what do you want to leave these people with? What do you want them walking out the door after they hear this letter read to them? What do you want them walking out thinking about? And here's what he says, James chapter five, verse seven. He says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Verse eight, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. If I could sum up everything that James says right here, it would be this. This guy's telling us that we've got to have ice water. We've got to finish strong. I don't know if any of y'all played sports growing up, but if you played sports growing up, um, or especially like in a junior high, high school, there was a point in, in at least one of the games that you were playing when it got to the end or it was fourth quarter or a couple minutes left where your coach calls a timeout and he brings everybody around. And it's kind of one of those Rudy moments where he gives this Rudy movie-esque speech. And in that speech, the whole gist of the speech is, look, we have to finish this game strong. And then you all come together and you put your hands in the middle and you say, you know, one, two, three, team, or one, two, three, finish, or one, two, three, kill, or whatever you all say as a team. And you all go out and you play. But you know that even after your coach would say, okay, we have to finish this strong, not everybody does. Perfect example. I don't know if you've been following the NBA Finals or the NBA Playoffs but, or, or the Mavs, but two games ago, the Mavs were playing Portland. And we're up by 23 points going into the fourth quarter. And I guarantee you, before the quarter started, coach brings them around, which I don't know if you noticed this. The Mavs coach looks like Jim Carrey. Anyways, he brings them around, and he brings them in the middle. And I guarantee you that he said, guys, we're up by 23, but we, we have to finish strong. We can't not show up for the fourth quarter. We'll lose. He says, finish strong. And sure enough, they didn't. They end up losing, just like 2006 NBA Finals, Dallas Mavericks, Dirt and Whiskey versus Miami Heat and D. Wade. And what happens? You remember? We got up by two games, looked like we were going to dominate these fools, get our first world championship, and they come back and win four games in a row and win the whole thing. And you know why that happened? Because the Mavs ain't got ice water. We've built our program about, around this big, tall, seven-foot European dude that's yet to prove that he has ice water flowing through his veins because he can't win when the game counts. And so in chapter 5, verse 7, James challenges the church. He says this. He says, you've got to have ice water. He says, you've got to have ice water. He says, we must persevere to the end and we must finish strong. Now, in all my preaching classes, which like I've taken many, I haven't really, um, but pre, you know, the, the preaching classes I've taken in seminary and, and you know, hermeneutics, that's a big word for preaching. Uh, they always say a good sermon has three points. And so like ever since that, it's, it's like when somebody tells you to read, like I love to read, but when somebody assigns something for you to read, what do you do? You automatically hate to read. You don't want to read it. So it's the same here. Like they say, here's a good sermon, three points, okay? And so ever since, I, I, it's like my life goal to either have two or four or just not three. It doesn't matter. So, but tonight, as much as I tried all week long, we've got exactly three points. So here we go. Point number one is this. Uh, James says uh, here, beginning in verse seven, he says, persevere in your faith. That's the first thing if you're writing stuff down. Persevere in your faith. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, be patient and then brothers until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but the past, uh, past week or two has, has been kind of crazy, I feel like, with, uh, with all the rain that we've had and as much as the tornado sirens have been going off. Uh, I have a tornado siren that's literally right across the street from my apartment, so when it goes off, I feel like I need to, like, feels like I'm in a war zone, honestly. I feel like I should go run and jump in a, you know, a bomb shelter or something, but we've had no shortage of wind. We've had no shortage of rain, and, and really, in our, where we are in our geographic location. We have four seasons. 
And naturally, spring tends to be the one where we get the most rain. But because of where we are, all four seasons, we have rain scattered in there. Now, in a lot of places, they have a very distinct dry season and a very distinct rainy season. Where we're going, uh, our team going to Honduras here in a couple weeks, we're going right at the tail end of the dry season, right at the front of the rainy season. So we'll probably get a little bit of both. I mean, but in Israel, there were two really important times of rain. There were the early rains and the late rains. The early rains came late October uh, to, or yeah, late October to early November. And these rains were extremely crucial to the farmers because they'd plant their seeds and they had to have that early rain to help that seed, I think the technical, technical word is germinate. It's like, you know, the birth moment of the seed, I guess. So they had to have that early rain for the seed, but then they had to have the late rains too. And the late rains happened in, in April and Mayish. And those were important because in the time between, this plant has grown, this wheat or grain or whatever has grown, and they needed the late rain to help mature that plant to a place where it was ready to be harvested. So, in the time between the late rain and the early rains, the farmer had to wait in faith, trusting that these rains were going to come. But when they were waiting, they wouldn't just sit there and do nothing. While they were waiting for the early rains to come, they would prepare in faith, really believing that they were going to come. And so they would prepare their fields, and then they would plant their seeds. And then as they're waiting in faith for the late rains, they wouldn't just sit there and do nothing. They would work the fields. They would keep the fields, you know, whatever they need to do to keep the fields up and going. And then they would prepare their storehouses for the harvest. And James says, just like the farmer, we too must be patient until the Lord's coming. He says, we must persevere in our faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to go to Hebrews a lot tonight as commentary. But Hebrews 11 gives us a really cool list of tons of men and women in the Old Testament who, uh, who live by faith. And there's one really common characteristic or quality that all these men and women shared. And, and you see it in, uh, very obviously in two places. Hebrews 11 verse 10, when talking about Abraham, it says this, For he, or for Abraham, was looking forward, those are key words, he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We see this again in verse 13. All these people, it says, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for, again, key words, looking for a country of their own. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for, key words there, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called, called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Then you get to Luke 9. Just use this as a little commentary. A guy comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus responds back, kind of in the same nature that, of, of what it says in Hebrews 11. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. Why do you, why do you think he says this? The, the image that he gives here is probably of this ox or this cow or something tied to this old school plow. And there's a guy who puts his hand to it, and he, I think they had something to step on, and, and, and you know, tells that cow to get moving or the ox to get moving. And, uh, and it starts pulling him, tilling the field or getting the field ready. And so he puts his hand to the plow, and he starts working. But then this guy looks back. And Jesus says, anybody who does that isn't fit for the kingdom of God. And here's why he says it. He says that because every time we take our sights off of Christ— it essentially disrupts or discourages our faith. And so you read through Hebrews 11, going back now to Hebrews 11, you read through that, you see this common quality between all of them, uh, that they were always looking forward. They were always longing for. They were always looking ahead towards this future hope they had. After you read through Hebrews 11, then you get to Hebrews 12, verse 1, and the, and the follow-up says this, Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these faithful people who are looking forward, had their eyes looking forward, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that is so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We'll come back to that here in a second. But verse two says, let us fix our eyes. I mean, it might as well say, let us look ahead. Let us long for, but it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Michael Jordan had ice water because he was able, when the game was on the line and the ball was in his hands, he was able to block out everything else happening in the arena. When the crowd was going crazy, booing him or cheering him or whatever, I mean, whatever the circumstances were, whether it was the world championship, whether it was national championship back in his UNC days, whatever, if it was just a regular game, at the end of the game, when it mattered and he had the ball in his hand, he, was, he had ice water because he was able to block out everything and keep his eyes fixed on the one thing that mattered in that moment. Tiger Woods, he used to have ice water. And when he had ice water, he had it because when he was standing on the 18th green and it was tied or he was one shot back or he was one shot up or whatever, the pressure was on, he was able to forget about the thousands of people that were making noise in the gallery and he was able to focus on the one thing that mattered in that moment. And so James says, we must persevere in our faith. And he says, we do so by keeping our eyes locked onto the target who is who? It's Christ. We have this eternal hope, but our hope isn't just eternal life with gold streets and gold animals or whatever else is gold out there. Our hope is eternal life spent with Christ. And so the way that we persevere in our faith is by keeping our eyes locked on target. So we must persevere in our faith. Second, he says, We must persevere in our calling. Verse eight. Listen to what he says in verse eight. He says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Again, he says, be patient, okay? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this. I don't know if I've said this already. If I have, I'm sorry. But James has more imperative verbs per square inch, per capita, per word, whatever, than any other book in the New Testament. And here, we've already seen a couple. Again, he says, you too be patient. But then he goes on and he gives us another one. He says, and stand firm. Now, some of your translations don't say stand firm. Some of y'all have different translations. Raise a hand. Some of your translations probably say strengthen your hearts. Is that what it says? Take courage, okay? The literal translation, if you were to go into the Greek, the literal, the literal translation here is strengthen your hearts. Now, up until like a couple months ago, I had this terrible fear of, of, of treadmills due to an accident I had in a hotel about four years ago. I was, uh, I was seriously, I was running by myself. Um, I mean, obviously, on the treadmill, I was running by myself. That would... If I wasn't, that would be an accident waiting to happen. But I was in the room by myself, okay? One of those little small hotel workout rooms. And the TV was over here, and so I'm running, you know, looking like this. And, and I've got long legs, so it's hard for me to stand those little things anyways. And I stepped off to the side. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Oh, my gosh. It's bad news. Like, I literally went flying off this thing and almost died. I, it was bad. So anyways, fear of treadmills up until a couple months ago. But now I'm a treadmill running machine. One of the best cardiovascular workouts, one of the best ways to strengthen your heart is to run. And so James says, strengthen your heart. But here, he's not just talking about your heart being the center of your physical life. He's talking about your heart being the center of your spiritual life. And your faith is in your heart. And so he says, strengthen your heart. James actually, when he says this, is revisiting something he talked about that we looked at uh, week two of this study. James chapter one, verses two through 12. Uh, I think, I think uh, yeah, that was, week, that was week two. 
Um, so you might recognize some of this stuff here. But he revisits something we talked about back then, and, and, and this is what we talked about. The American dream version of Christianity is plagued with what we called in week two spiritual couch potatoes. You remember that? The American dream version of Christianity is plagued with these spiritual couch potatoes, and we are right smack dab in the middle of this American dream version of Christianity. And I would go as far as to argue that when most of us pick up God's word and we read it, or when we pick it up and we, and we hear it, we don't get the raw or the untampered with truth. Instead, as we, as we read it and as we hear it, it first goes through this filter of what the American dream says life should be like. And so when, the, when, when God's word finally makes it to our hearts, we're not really getting God's word. Instead, we're getting this diluted uh, knockoff cheap version of grace and cheap version of Christianity that truthfully really isn't Christianity at all. And so the result is many of us, if not most of us in this room, are what we called in week two spiritual or Christian couch potatoes. And if we're not careful, we are going to die of heart failure due uh, or caused by spiritual obesity or Christian obesity. If you don't remember this, go back to the podcast and listen to it. Uh, I, there, were some, there were some pretty big truths in there. But we fill ourselves and we fill ourselves and we fill ourselves with, with so much knowledge. And in this case, and in most cases, it's not even like totally true. It's diluted knowledge of God's word. But we never work it out. And so here we are. We're getting, we're getting fat with knowledge, but we're not getting fit in our faith. And for, for so many of us, the only way that we've ever exercised our faith is, is in a way that everybody's forced, essentially, to exercise their faith. And here's what I mean. Like, everybody's going to die. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to die. Unless the Lord comes back before then, you're going to die. And so everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, has some sort of faith in what happens after death. Like, you believe that you're going to die and just rot in a grave somewhere? You, you, I mean, essentially, that's a faith position. That's your belief. If you're a Christian, then you have faith that for whatever reason, Jesus Christ is going to save you uh, to eternal life, save you from your sins and to eternal life. But the reality is, for many of us, that is the only way we've exercised our faith, something that is not going to take place until the future. But God's intentions are for us to exercise faith now, not just looking off into the future. He wants us to exercise faith now. And that's why James says, strengthen your hearts. But specifically, he says, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. I'm not, I'm not a big video gamer, but I do have a, one little sweet tooth for one game. I have a weakness for a game. It's a, it's a game called Call of Duty. Anybody in here? Okay, it's a terrible game. I haven't played it in forever uh, because it's terrible. But let me kind of give you the gist of what this game is. It's you're, you're, depending on the game, depending on where you are, you're like in a war zone, and you're, uh, yeah, you are, uh, um, you're in a war zone, and you're either you know, like Russian or, I don't know, German or somebody, and the whole goal of the game is to just shoot people, okay? And so you can play online. You can play different episodes online or different types of games online. My favorite was always free-for-all, where it's every man for himself. You just shoot as many people as you can. Now, here's what, was, to me, was it's a terrible game, okay? I don't recommend playing it. But here's, here is what was so funny about it, or especially so unrealistic about it to me, and that is this. Victory was imminent. I mean, you, you, you can't lose the game. Now, here's what I mean. You can lose in points, but if you get fatally wounded in the game, then two seconds later, you're going to respawn somewhere else on the map. And because of that, it made it, it, it was almost funny because people took ridiculous risks and made such stupid decisions in the game that they would never make in real warfare. I mean, like, you'd be running away from somebody and you'd be on a three-story building, you'd just, you know, you just jump off and just knowing that two seconds later, you know, you're going to respawn somewhere else on the map and you go back to battle. Or, you know, you just dart, a, you know, 
like unashamedly dart across the middle of the street and you know, nine out of 10 times you're gonna get sniped when you do that, but it's a game, you're gonna get respawned no matter what, so you might as well try and get across the street wherever you're going, you know? I mean, people would make stupid decisions. It was, I don't know. So anyways, James 5, 7. James 5, 7, he says, uh, he says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. He says, the Lord is coming. And because the Lord is coming, we know that when the Lord comes that he brings victory with him. And the fact that the Lord is coming means that victory is imminent for us. And knowing that, we can and we should and we need to take risks because we know that victory is coming. We know we can't lose. I mean, we'll respond. <laughs> it's somewhere else. It'll be awesome. In faith, there's no reason to be scared because we know we're looking at the fact that the Lord is coming. But the second thing he says in verse 8 is this. He goes further than that. He says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is what? Say what? Imminent. What my translation says is near. So not only is the victory imminent, not only is the victory for sure coming, but it's coming soon. And this is important for two reasons. One, it's important because it means that we have very little time left ourselves to get to know our Savior before we actually meet him face to face. That's a big deal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. The fact that he's coming soon is important for that reason. The second reason it's important is because we have very little time as believers to do what we're called to do. And that is to go to battle for all these other people who have not yet met our Savior that we have a relationship with before we meet him face to face. The fact that he's coming soon means that we have very little time left before, before or we have very little time left to stand in the gap for these people who don't know Christ yet, to introduce them hopefully to Christ so that they can not have the fate of eternal death or eternal life spent away from God and instead can have eternal life with Christ, with God. So he says, look, yeah, the Lord's coming, but not only that, the Lord is coming soon. So what that tells us is we essentially then need to move quickly or, or urgently. How many of you in here have ever run a race before? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. Anybody run something beyond just a sprint, like you've run a long distance, like a 5K? Anybody run a 5K or more? Anybody in here run a, a half marathon? Anybody run a marathon? Okay, I don't, I don't uh, envy you at all. I would not want to run a marathon, but good job. Um, okay, so, so a long race, okay? What do you do when you know that the finish line is, is very soon, very, very close? I mean, you, okay, you get a, maybe, possibly, you get a second win, potentially. But I mean, what do you do regardless of the second win? You take off running. Why do you take off running? I couldn't hear anything you said. Okay, so two reasons I think you take off running. One is uh, you want to look good when you come across the finish line. You know, there's potentially hundreds, maybe thousands of people there that are waiting for their loved one to come across, taking pictures. And so you sprint across. You don't want them to know you're walking back in the trees, you know. You want them to see you sprinting hard, fast. But the second reason you sprint it out is because you want to finish strong. You don't want to lose. Now, most of us, no offense, would probably lose. I know I would lose any sort of race, really. But, I mean, we, we want to beat other people. We don't want to come in last, you know. So we want to finish strong. I told you all that uh, a few of us were on the Warrior Dash a couple weeks ago. I know some of you girls did too, which uh, that's cool, I guess. And, uh, and the three of us, we ran together. And uh, I didn't mean anything by that. That just kind of came out. So the three of us, we ran together, and we made a pact that we, when we were going to run together that we were, well, we made a pact we were going to run together. And so, but there's 12 obstacles in this 5K. And, uh, and so, you know, we're running along and stuff. We got to, I don't know, it was the second or third to last obstacle is this We'll say 20, actually, we'll say like 40. That sounds cooler. We'll say like 40 feet high of hay bales. It's probably like 20, 
but we'll say 40. 40 feet high of hay bales that we had to crawl over and then kind of jump off on, on the other side, you know, crawl down, jump off. Um, and when we got to the bottom of that, we knew we were close to the finish line. So we said, hey, look, from here, we're sprinting it out. And, and we did. I mean, we sprinted out except for one place. We, we, we paused with about 100 yards left to take pictures for the uh, people anyway. So we, we sprinted out from that point forward. Lance Armstrong, he won seven Tour de France's. And the reason that he won seven Tour de France's, which is unheard of, is because the fool has some ice water in his veins. But, but why did he win those Tour de France's? Why can we say this guy has ice water? It's because of what we're just talking about. When he knew the finish line was close, man, he turned it into second, third, fourth, fifth gear, and he got going because he saw the finish line was there, and he finished strong. And so James says we must persevere in our faith, but then he says we must persevere in our calling. Not just in our faith, but we must persevere in our calling. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what, I mean, he's saying that God has prepared us to serve him, to do things for him. What is it that he's prepared us to do or equipped us to do? In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, pretty generic here. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We already read over this, but I want to come back to it. Because here, it almost fits in the, in the order we've read these scriptures. He says, therefore, knowing what your calling is, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we're surrounded by other people who persevered, not just in faith, but in their calling, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I mean, the finish line is close. And that has implications not only on us, but that has implications on other people. And so James says we have to persevere in our calling. And then the third thing he says is this, uh, verse 9. Listen to verse 9. He says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The third thing is this, persevere as a unit or, or persevere together. And I want you to see this. If you go back to verse 7, he says, be patient then what? Come on, you get, God gave you a voice, use it. Brothers, be patient then what? Brothers, okay, is that plural or singular? Plural. Okay, verse eight, he says, you too be patient. You, singular or plural? False, it's plural. If you were to go to the Greek, it would say humes instead of su. If it said su, that would be singular. Humes is, is or umes, whatever, it's plural for you. It's like saying you all or y'all. We can just say you and it'd be plural in English. So it's you, it's, it's actually plural. So verse nine, he says this, you too be patient, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Verse nine, don't grumble against each other. When he says each other, he's obviously addressing more than one person. Then later on in verse 9, he says, don't grumble against each other. What? Brothers, singular or plural? <laughs> Who said singular? What else? Plural, obviously. Okay, don't grumble against each other, brothers. Or he says, you will be judged. Singular or plural? <laughs> Nobody wants to talk now. It's plural. That, that, that verb, uh, to be judged, is actually in, in the plural form. So James, he's not addressing them in any of this as individuals. All of this, he's addressing them as a unit or as a community. Now, we've gone to Hebrews a lot, so let's keep going there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
So this guy says, knowing that the Lord's coming is near, persevere. But specifically, this guy in Hebrews says, persevere together. Do so together. Help each other persevere. Man, there are so many people in this room, but there's also people outside of this room who are struggling so much in your faith. And the reason that you're struggling so much in your faith is because you're trying to do it alone. You're doing it apart from community, and that's not how it was created to be. I mean, we don't do house churches or community groups, and we don't do life group on Sunday morning for no reason. We don't do that stuff because there's this, you know, church manual, which, well, I guess this is kind of a church manual, but there's not, you know, there's not like this actual church manual that says, you know, section 1.231, this is what you need to do, house church, you know, meet during the week, student-led, whatever. There's nothing that says that. We don't do it just because of that. We do it because we've got to have community. And there's two ways that we have to have community. We have to have community with our peers, with other people our age, but we also need to have community with, with other people who are, who are older than us and even younger than us too. So James, I mean, if he was here, you know what he'd say? He'd say, stop trying to do it on your own. Persevere together. The reality is Michael Jordan and Lance Armstrong they had ice water, but they didn't do it alone. They had a supporting cast. Lance Armstrong, he, he, he cycles in a team. Jordan obviously has a team. Even Tiger Woods, he used to have ice water. And the reason is because he had a supporting cast. He had a caddy and he had a wife. And to be honest, not to make a joke of his situation, I think the reason he no longer has ice water is because he lost part of his supporting cast. So James says we must persevere in our faith. We must persevere uh, in our calling, and we must persevere together or persevere as a unit. Then he goes on, verse 10. And he says this, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. Here's what he says. He says, you want to know what it looks like to persevere? You want to know what it looks like to have ice water? This is what it looks like. All the prophets in the Old Testament, ice water. I mean, you look at their circumstances. They faced tough circumstances, rough audiences, difficult callings, yet they persevered. And then he brings up Job. Job, ice water. Man, that fool lost everything. And he suffered more than probably any of us in this room have suffered. He lost everything, yet he finished strong. Our friends in Southeast Asia that we talked about last week, ice water to the max. I mean, these people are living in a country where the gospel is not welcome. They were arrested. They were kicked out of their village. Then when they were able to come back, they weren't allowed to live in the village. They're having to live outside. They've lost everything. They're now living on a pig farm. They've lost their security. They've lost a lot of family, friends. They've lost comfort, and yet they're still persevering. And so we come to this question now. Well, we gotta ask, what about you? What about me? It's a weird question, but do you have ice water? I mean, are you persevering in faith knowing that the Lord is coming? Are you persevering in your calling knowing not only that he's coming, but that he's coming soon? But way more important than those questions, what about us? Do we together have ice water? Are we persevering together like James challenges the church then and essentially challenges us now to do? This past weekend, we, we, we just celebrated Christ's death and his resurrection. And gosh, when you look at his life, what a crazy life. What an awesome life. 
I mean, before he made that last trip to Jerusalem, that dude did some crazy stuff. He walked on water, calmed the raging sea, fed thousands of people with just some bread and some fish. I mean, he healed people, brought people back to life. He showed his power not only over the physical world, but over the spiritual world. He showed his authority. I like that word better, authority over the spiritual world. He, he kicked demons out of people. I mean, this dude did some cool and crazy stuff. But of all the miracles that were totally awesome, the most incredible thing I think about Christ's life is those final hours. I mean, he courageously went to the cross and he finished the work that God had sent him to do. There is absolutely no greater example of ice water than the example of that of Christ. The Lord is ice water. He has ice water. And apart from him, we don't have it. But if we have Christ, we do have it. We can and we will persevere. So James says we must persevere in our faith. We must persevere in our calling. We must persevere together. And I did figure out a way to keep it from being three points. We must persevere in Christ. Because apart from Christ, there is no perseverance. Apart from Christ, it's, it's impossible, literally. I love Gatorades. Uh, one of their old slogans, I don't think it is anymore. But you remember one of their old slogans was, Gatorade, is it in you? You know, that crazy deep voice and somebody sweating with that colorful sweat or whatever. But tonight, here's the real question. Knowing that Gatorade's whole slogan came out of, maybe this is what causes these guys to have ice water. Maybe this is what causes that phenomena, phenom, phenomenon in them. them. No. The question tonight is, Christ, is he in you? Because we see very clearly from Scripture, and let me read to you this last bit. I didn't read all of verse 11 earlier on purpose. Verse 11 says, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and, and listen to what it says next. You've heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's where he gets at. Look, the Lord is the one who is ice water and we have to have him if we want it to. We can't persevere apart from him. And so the question is, Christ, is he in you? Is he in you? We must persevere in our faith. We must persevere in our calling. We must persevere together and we must persevere in Christ.